So there's a uh, secret Facebook group for moms of LGBTQ kids who are um, in religious uh, settings that don't support them. It's called uh, Serendipity Doodah Moms, just to give you the end. It's big. It's like uh, over 2,000 moms are in this group and more being added daily. Um, and Emily and I have done so. Emily's doing uh, Sunday school today because we had some unexpected uh, sickness in some of and our... we learned that a lot of these moms uh, actually cannot find a church home in their local community that supports their love of God and their love for their LGBTQ kids. So we invited anyone interested in this group of 2,000 who don't have a church home to be part of Blue Ocean Faith Ann Arbor uh, through an online connection that we're creating. So we already have the, the live stream that uh, Mike Lamone is doing there and Robin does with Mike most weeks. Um, and we'll have our weekly update. We'll get those to the moms. And so we have like uh, the leader of the Serendipity Moms group kind of promoted it with the moms. And she started a Serendipity Doodah Facebook page with the Blue Ocean like subgroup. And in the first day, like 108 moms signed up. And so this Sunday, some of the moms are, are uh, uh, going to be part of the um, podcast or the live stream. Um, just to give you a feel for some of these moms, like they were introducing themselves, and, and it, it's all confidential because the kids might not, not be out, the moms might not be out in their, in their unsupportive areas or whatever, but this was something, and a little introductory note from one of the moms, she, she wrote, since I live on a boat called Grateful in the blue ocean, I am feeling so eager to join this community, meaning this online thing we're doing, the churches in the small islands of the West Indies, he's from the West Indies, for the most part reject vocally anything remotely considered gay people in any kind of open way puts them at risk. And what she's saying is, I want to have the courage to be able to do that. And I'm looking to connection with your community through this online thing for that kind of support. So that's like, that's like pretty awesome. So th uh, these moms refer to themselves as mama bears. That's their self-designation. So I thought it might be kind of fun if we like turn to the camera you know, back there and give them a shout out like, welcome, uh, welcome mama bears. We're glad you're here. Woo! It's awesome. Yes. Okay, so actually it's kind of interesting because these moms represent um, a much broader phenomenon that actually inspired our series, which we're calling Why Christian? And, and the, the thesis or the question we're asking is how do people find or how do people hold on to faith when the religious landscape where you can actually often discover faith or make connections with God can be, at least at this time, so treacherous, um, so toxic actually for so many different people. And before I, I get into my part, like I'm actually going to tell my, uh, my story of this today. Um, but I wanted Kathleen to uh, uh, wrote her to share a bit of her story, especially for the serendipity doodah moms, because um, Kathleen, I think, can speak with a genuine appreciation for what they're about. So give it up for Kathleen. Oh, I'm sorry. Kathleen reminds me that she might need a microphone. 
I'm not super afraid of public speaking. Um, I'm Kathleen, and I've been going to Blue Ocean for, I think, a little under a year now. Um, but Ken asked me to share about um, being identifying as LGBTQ and also maintaining my faith in a Christian God. Um, and so I grew up in a conservative home. Um, I didn't know anyone gay when I was growing up. There was no, uh, I couldn't picture a future with a woman if I wanted to, because that wasn't um, something that was around my community. Um, but when I moved out to Ann Arbor, that did become evident as a possibility. Um, and that was really encouraging to me. Um, but so throughout my journey, I felt very, um, I always identified as a strong Christian growing up. I uh, was the confirmation class speaker at my church, and I felt very um, close to Jesus in a personal way. Um, but I felt anytime I expressed um, my that I was interested in women, I felt oppressed by the people I was around. Um, and so I had a hard time differentiating what I was hearing as like human voices from God's voice. Um, and so it was a long journey. There was a few existential crises where um, I, I didn't know if I could be gay Christian. I thought like one of them I would have to forfeit. Um, and so eventually um, I came to a place where I could really I prayed about this for years, and I came to a place where I felt like the only voices of rejection I was hearing about um, like my sexual life were from humans. Like I wasn't hearing it from God's voice. Mm. Um, and that was the freedom that I needed to kind of pursue um, what I felt was like me being my full self, but also being like the true Christian person I felt myself to be. Um, and connected to God in that way. And then was the problem of finding a church um, that reflected that. And my fiance and I were um, going to another church in the community. And after we got engaged, we asked ourselves why <laughs> we were going to a church that wouldn't marry us. And that set us on a journey to, um, we went to every affirming church in the area. And Blue Ocean was the one that resonated most with us that um, we felt was like truly scriptural and um, also social justice oriented, but it wasn't one or the other. It wasn't throwing out the Bible. <laughs> um, and so, you know, this is where we found our home. So for me, um, why I'm still Christian is because, and the word Christian, like I've heard shared before, is sometimes hard to use because it comes with a lot of when I hear someone tell me they're a Christian, I hear rejection a lot of times. Like, I don't want to tell them that I'm engaged to a woman off the bat. Um, but the reason I'm a follower of Christ is because Jesus has never rejected me. Um, and so, um, so I'm really encouraged when Ken called me yesterday and told me there's a group of moms <laughs> who... Um, want to support their kids, that like melts my heart. Um, 
so my parents aren't, um, they're very rejecting of my relationship and, you know, we're very distant from each other because of that. Um, and so I've found that God is the perfect parent um, and I'm loved perfectly by God. And so um, as an encouragement to the moms who um, are supporting their kids, like that is one of the most healing things you can do for a loved one is be supportive of their true self. Um, and for those uh, to speak to the moms whose children uh, do not believe in God or um, reject the faith because they feel rejected by the faith. Um, I, my brother is also gay. We're two for five in my family, we joke. Um, and uh, he's been a huge support to me, but he's always identified as atheist or agnostic, um, really as like to protect himself from you know the hatred and rejection he's felt. And recently, he started to talk to me about um, a belief in a higher power. And um, so my encouragement is, even if you feel like your child isn't um, accepting of God, like there's always a plan, and ours are short-sighted. Um, but I find like a lot of strength in the fact that like for years, my brothers felt rejected, but like watching me find a church and become accepted by a faith community, I think has encouraged him to not shut off completely to the idea of an accepting and loving God. Um, and so that's just a little bit about me. Um, I don't know. That's everything. It's so, it's so important for these moms to like actually meet people or connect with people who are in the same situation as their kids and are, are actually thriving and are doing, doing fine. So, because that, that's not a message that they're often getting in their own faith uh, kind of milieu matrix. Um, so, Jesus told a little parable in Matthew's gospel, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And some of the material's the same in all of them, but... Uh, this little parable in, in Matthew is only found in Matthew's gospel. And it's, it's like my favorite all-time little parable. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which someone found and hid. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has to buy the field. And the, the background to this would be like peasants would work fields and they'd be digging around for stuff. And like the peasant's dream, like, you know, poor person's dream now is, you know, get a lottery ticket, win the lottery. The peasant's dream was find treasure buried in some field that you're working as a, as a you know, tenant farmer or whatever, and then figure out a way to get the, get the treasure. And um, so it's, a, it's kind of a, an interesting background to the parable. And, but I, I kind of have an extended use of this parable which is, I, I think of Jesus as the treasure buried in, in the field of religion. So I think actually Jesus is buried in all sorts of different spheres and, and fields, but one of the main fields is, is religion, with all the trappings of religion and institutions and moral codes and all, and all, all that kind of stuff. Uh, sacred texts, um, organizations, uh, political movements, uh, we go on and on. It's a human enterprise. Um, but for too many people, 
uh, and this probably represents majority of people in this room, religion um, is actually a minefield. It's a minefield for different ones of us for many different reasons. So back in my old charismatic community days, Kathleen came actually from a Catholic charismatic community. I'm going to tell you some some gory and glory stories from those days in a minute because uh, it's kind of my turn. But um, back in my old charismatic community days, um, we used to encounter very, various prophets because it was kind of a big, important community and so we could draw the big prophets. And you might have time with one of these prophet guys. And one of these prophets was named Bob Jones. I don't know if anyone knows the name Bob Jones in this group. That's good. You're not religiously. <laughs> and Bob Jones was from the Ozarks. And his method of prophesying to you is you'd hold out your hands, and then he put his hands on your hands, and he'd just look at you. And your hands would start sweating. And you were supposed to keep eye contact with Bob Jones. The eye is the window to the soul, you understand. He was looking into your soul to see what he could see. And so I did this, and he goes, well, looky here. This one has a strong anointing. Uh, don't be impressed. Everyone that he, he talked to had a strong anointing. And I'm like, what's my strong anointing? He said, this is one who walks as through a minefield at midnight. I'm like, is there a return policy on anointings? That doesn't sound, that doesn't sound good. I read a book once by Miroslav Wolf, who's a, a Croatian refugee from the wars in the early 90s in that part of Europe, and it's called Exclusion and Embrace. And I think this that describes the dynamic tension that this parable is inferring, at least in our context. Um, the field of religion is too often defined by exclusion, while the treasure that's buried in the field of religion is actually all about embrace, which is exactly like what Kathleen's experience was when she shared her story. Um, now, it's an interesting Sunday to be telling this story because my oldest buddy, Mark um, Headley, he's known as Headley today, I knew him as Mark, is uh, here today. Um, Headley is like an independent journalist. Uh, he, he's done some really interesting writing on Detroit. We both grew up in Detroit together in the, in the 60s. Um, and he's a ref refugee from Florida. So it took him 18 hours to drive out of Florida. And he drove up here and is staying. And, and Headley's family uh, was one of the first Jewish families in our, to move into our northwest Detroit neighborhood in the 1950s. I, I started, uh, I knew Mark at the age of five. Um, and there were actually uh, neighbors in our neighborhood who told their kids to stay away from the Jewish family because they were kind of like, you know, I don't know, polluting the neighborhood or something in this all-Gentile, all-white 1950s uh, Northwest Detroit neighborhood. Um, so the, the bigotry at that time um, didn't think to hide behind euphemisms like alt-right. It was just, you know, boom. So Mark and I, Headley and I, lost touch for decades, and we, we reconnected years, a few years ago through, uh, through Facebook. And it's been, a, just, it's been a blessing to reconnect with someone who I've known from um, such a young period of my life. And um, 
Hedley reminded me when we reconnected that of something I'd kind of forgotten is that my late wife, Nancy, and I, uh, when we were just newly married at a young age, paid him a visit in Toronto. He had moved to Toronto, I don't know, to dodge the draft or something, and he was living in Toronto. And we were brand new, like flush with faith Jesus freaks, and we like did our best to pry him loose from his atheism, and we were totally unsuccessful. Uh, Mark likes to say there's a, just a small difference between me and Ken. He just has one more God than I do, you know, <laughs> which when you think about it, it's like, yeah, there's a lot of gods and we, he just has one more than I do. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, and also you probably pray and you're ashamed about that. And I, I'm, I'm an atheist at times and I'm ashamed about that. So we've, we've got a lot in common, <laughs> Hedley and I. Um, so today I thought I'd uh, uh, tell my journey through the uh, minefield um, story, some of the stuff that maybe you haven't heard. I'll start with maybe some of the stuff that if you've been around you have heard, but I'll get into some more juicy stuff that you haven't heard. Uh, So if you know my story, you know that um, my high school girlfriend, Nancy Roselle, and I got married when we were 18 for the usual reasons. Teenagers got married, unplanned pregnancy. I say that as if I had nothing to do with it. It just happened. (laughs) Uh, You know, actually, I I don't think at the time we felt much guilt at all about that uh, pregnancy. Uh, when we went to get married, um, the, the preacher was late. The Lutheran pastor was late. He was on vacation. It was a half hour late. And he offered to change the date on the wedding thing so that it looked like we were married. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, I'm not ashamed of this. You know, it, this is July 11, 1970. Put it on. I had a little piss and vinegar. Um, but we felt a lot of shame not guilt, but shame. Shame is all about your social matrix. And in 1970, like, you know, everybody knew that teenagers might have sex, but contraception wasn't generally available to those teenagers. And there was still a lot of social stigma uh, for being pregnant out of wedlock. It was like getting caught doing something that everybody does, but, you know, but you were stupid enough to get caught. And so all of, but a couple of friends evaporated at that time in our lives. But one of the friends who didn't was Brian. And Brian was part of the early Jesus people movement uh, of the late 60s. And by then it's 1970. And instead of distancing, he actually reached out to us. Um, you know, the, the earliest days of the Jesus movement are hard for people now to understand because it was culturally left-leaning, anti-war hippies, unconnected from most institutional religion. I think the guy who kind of launched the Jesus movement, Lonnie Frisbee, um, was gay. Uh, and, and he had a, a vision that launched the Jesus movement when he was on LSD. So there were a lot of Jesus people who were still messing around with the weed and that, that kind of stuff. It was a whole different thing. It was a perfect fit for me and Nancy. <laughs> and we were all about connecting to Jesus as our path to God. So Jesus Christ, superstar, um, Godspell, the musical, that kind of gives you the ethos of the early Jesus movement. So what, what Brian and his girlfriend, Barb, did was they just they embraced us and they modeled a possibility of a personal connection with God that doesn't seem at all religious and was, I remember the first time they, they came over for dinner when we were in Ann Arbor and I kind of jokingly said, hey Brian, you're the religious guy, why don't you pray before the meal? And he just 
opened his eyes and he started talking to God like God was his friend. And I'd never heard that before, never seen that before. I thought, oh my God, what if there's someone on the end or the other end of that that's listening to that and that it actually mirrors something real? It was, it was quite shocking. Um, you know, so much religion today, um, especially since the rise of the religious right in the late 1970s, is a kind of moral crusade. So the first iteration of the religious right was called uh, the moral majority. It imploded because there was some scandal and then a new, new group took up the banner, uh, I don't know, focus on the family or whatever. Uh, but the original name, moral majority, I think says it all. That's a power move, right? When you call yourself a majority and you put the word moral in front of it, it's like our morality, we're coming after you. It's an intimidating kind of name. Um, and the religious right was actually a political alliance between Roman Catholicism and evangelicalism, which are by far the two largest sectors of Christianity in America. So it essentially branded Christianity as this asserting power for the sake of their vision of morality and worldly power. That had nothing to do with my early experience of Jesus through the Jesus movement because it preceded the dawn of the religious right. What, what I inhaled in the early 1970s was the faith of embrace, uh, not exclusion. So in the early years, I can literally, and I went to a lot of meetings, we call them meetings, mostly in homes. I can't recall anyone railing against homosexuality or any of the other uh, what became hot-button issues. It was a movement of spiritual connection, not moral crusading. So our first church that we connected to was near downtown Detroit, just in sight of the Windsor Bridge, uh, um, West Grand Boulevard in Toledo. It was Messiah Lutheran Church. It was a unique community that took in the Jesus, hippie Jesus freaks, like we're, you know, 19, 18, 20, around that time. Uh, neighborhood people was becoming more and more Hispanic. Uh, suburbanites who drew down, drove, drove from the suburbs to, uh, for the great preaching. And like down and outers from the Cass Corridor, like the Skid Row of Detroit. I remember uh, midweek Bible studies where there'd be like an art professor from Wayne State, and it'd always be like one outspoken, inebriated questioner in the Bible study that actually made it very interesting and got to some, some really important issues, although sometimes a little bit too uh, loosely and verbosely. <laughs> so this was really an inclusive community um, as I remember it, and it had a real imprinting impact on my faith. Like this was like to me, oh, this is what genuine Jesus faith is like. That pastor had a huge impact on my dad who suffered undiagnosed PTSD from World War II. In 1972, my dad took a massive overdose of barbiturates. He landed in the ICU um, uh, Sinai in uh, Detroit. His body systems were shutting down. His kidneys had failed. And this pastor, Dick Bieber from Messiah, came to visit um, while me and my uh, buddy from high school, Mark Kinzer, whom some of you know, the Jewish guy who kind of came and gave that talk that everyone is still talking about, um, 
and, and we were in the, in the chapel praying while Dick was visiting my dad in the ICU. And Dick was talking to my dad in the coma. Like, Glenn, we, we, he had met him before. And we were like, you're loved and, and come back. And, and people are waiting for you. And the nurse said, you know, sorry, pastor, but he can't hear your word you're saying. And as Dick started to leave, like 10 seconds later, my dad piped up, thanks for coming, Dick. And like he had awakened. And he was fine, defying all the doctors. The doctors told him if he wakes up, he'll be like a vegetable for life possibly. So this is bad. Um, the doctors on round, my, my sister overheard the doctors on rounds outside the door. You know how they talk about the patient as if the patient's not there. Said it was the closest thing to witchcraft they'd ever seen. So th this church embraced my often irascible father who really found saving faith there. I think it literally saved his life to be part of that faith community and to feel the belonging and embrace of that community. I heard a lot about Jesus whenever I visited that church, but not a peep of moral majority talk. So by 1993, Nancy and I got involved in a charismatic community, much like Kathleen's community. It was, in fact, it was like the epicenter of the Catholic charismatic renewal in the, uh, in the Catholic Church, which is this big global renewal movement of the late 60s and early 70s. I wonder how many people have heard locally of the Word of God community, except through me. Like you heard about it through other means. Just maybe raise your hands. And yeah, so it's a, it was, and, and you know, that's a, that's a lot of people knowing about something. Um, so at the height, this community was 3,000 people. I think it was 1,600 adults, 1,400 uh, kids. Most of the people were in small groups. Most had a pastoral leader. Most, most gave close to 10% of their gross income. I mean, it, this, we, this was a serious group of uh, hippies. Who, you know, um, It was intense, intentional, and charismatic, like neo-Pentecostal community. Lots of people living together communally. Nancy and I had like 60 single people live with our family over the years, often like three, four, five. One time we had eight single people uh, living with us. For a period of time, we lived in common finances with people, like the Amish without horse and buggy kind of thing. So especially at first, there was a lot of embrace in that community experience. And I see Kathleen nodding her head because she experienced that in her, her charismatic community. It's, it's where I learned to be vulnerable with other people, like to share what was going on with me and not just like to, sh you know, show how awesome I was, but stuff I was struggling with, uh, to offer support, seek help from other people. Uh, it's where I learned like to deal directly with conflict, something I never learned in the, my family uh, growing up. Um, uh, and there were lots of opportunities to try out charismatic Pentecostal God experience. So I spoke in tongues a lot. I still do. I, I showed Oceana and Julia the other day what speaking in tongues sounds like. They were like, oh, it sounds like scat. <laughs> I spoke in tongues. I learned to listen to the voice of the Spirit. There was more focus on the Spirit in this group than in the Detroit thing, which was more a Jesus, uh, more Jesus group. Um, I got slain in the Spirit. That's where, like, you're standing there, whoop, you fall over, and, and maybe someone catches you, and maybe 
one doesn't. And it's amazing that you can fall over flat on your back and nobody goes to the hospital. And I got slain in the spirit. I danced in the spirit. You would be happy that you weren't around to see that. <laughs> I remember, you know, we're all young. I remember a men's retreat. There were a lot of men's retreats. And the speaker was like really getting lathered up. And he's like, take your shirts off and raise a loud shout. We always whipped off our shirts and we're raising a loud shout to God. You know, the thing is, there's always a little voice in your head or there's like a little cameraman in your head that is videoing that and, and saying, what the heck are you doing? But it's like you get swept up. The, this was a very strange mix, though, of Pentecostal charismatic because it was highly educated. Like the, the uh, dean of the School of Natural Resources retired early to be a leader in this group. The main leaders, I would say, were Catholic intellectuals with a fundamentalist reading of Scripture. Um, this movement had the attention of the Roman uh, church hierarchy and many other big denominational churches. There were visits from bishops and cardinals to see what was going on. It was very heady in the early years. The focus was, it was a focus of national and international religious buzz. It was like the hot new thing happening. But over time, this moral crusade thing with its exclusionary impulse crept in. It was actually part of a much bigger cultural movement, a, a rising reaction to the excesses of the cultural revolution of the 1960s, the drug, sex, and rock and roll thing, and that, which was very frightening for a lot of people who were participated in it. Um, and the people in this community were kind of swept into that reaction to the uh, countercultural movement. It was a counter counter-cultural movement eventually. So we were throwing out our Rolling Stone albums and our Black Sabbath albums and, and there was a lot of talk all of a sudden of secular humanism and dangers of feminism. Everything was dangerous. Just to give you a clue, the female leaders who were only leaders for other women, not men, were called handmaids. I know that sounds kind of creepy now. Um, I have an inglorious past, but wait, there's more. <laughs> I, I actually rose in the ranks of leadership in this community and was eventually the equivalent of being one of the ordained leaders. I don't know if there were a dozen or 15, this large group. And Nancy's dad came to the ordination ceremony. Pioneer Auditorium was filled on a Sunday afternoon the adults of this community, and there was loud, charismatic singing, and Oceana is learning something about her stepdad, even as we speak. She's going, what did my mom get connected with? <laughs> and they were, um, and, and so this loud, beautiful singing, singing in tongues and whatever was going on, but there were a couple of young guys right behind me, and my father-in-law my, my father-in-law's stand was like a cigarette-drinking, uh, smoking, martini-drinking GM guy that is like out of casting for Mad Max. And 
these two guys were having so much fun praying very loudly in a, in a peculiar staccato tongue for an extended period of time right behind my father-in-law's stand. He was shell-shocked. After the service and then the reception back at our house, I'm walking Stan back to his car. He gave me the best compliment, the weirdest, strangest, best compliment I've ever received in my life. He said, Ken, I can't say I know what the hell you're doing with your life, <laughs> but you've created a beautiful family. <laughs> I was like, thank you, Stan. <laughs> As I got deeper into leadership, um, the evidence began to accumulate that there was a lots of bad fruit from this, re I would call it a fear-based reactive approach to Christianity. My, one of my early like wake-up moments was talking with my young teenage daughter, Maya, and she asked the question, Dad, why can't women be pastors? I guess it would be in the, sometime in the 1980s. And I was like, well, and blah, 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 blah. And the look on her face, you know, this daughter who admired her dad and loved her dad and like some kind of like little light just dimmed in her eyes. And she looked at me like, you're talking nonsense. I mean, she didn't say that. She, but it was all in a look. And as I was doing the blah, 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 I was like, ah, this doesn't sound right to me as I'm, as I'm, as I'm explaining it. That was, a, that was an important moment. So by the late 1980s, a group of leaders, and I was among them, uh, after a couple years of pretty serious soul searching, made the painful decision that we needed to take responsibility for this bad fruit and actually publicly repent as leaders to the entire community. And I was selected to give the talk that did that. I wasn't like the, I wasn't like the senior most leader, but I was like the I was like a real reformer kind of guy, and I was sure I'll do it. And I gave this talk to a packed auditorium at Pioneer High School. Press was in attendance because word was getting out what was going on. It was like a searing bad experience. Seeing the write-up in the Ann Arbor Observer was the worst. Ken Wilson threw muffled sobs. You know, blah blah blah. Oh my God, I'm Tammy Baker. You know, it's like. <laughs> You know, you don't plan your life to be the guy giving that talk. You really don't. You don't plan your life to be that guy. It just uh, happens. I, I, I stumbled into uh, an era and a geographic locality of intense religious uh, ferment. And that ferment, it, it began as the Jesus movement but then in Word of God and Charismatic Renewal, it slowly got taken over by the powers that animate so much of that fear-based react, reactive Christianity. I don't mean take over. I meant it's like an overlay on top of all the good stuff. So it's, it's a mixture. It's like the wonderful stuff is still there, but there's this overlay on top of it. And the thing that saved my soul through all that was this profound experience of coming to see I was wrong when I thought I was so right. You know, when you, when you feel like you're right and you share that feeling with a group of people that you admire and look up to, 
it's a, it's a powerful feeling. And when you see that, oh my gosh, what I was so confident was right was actually like badass wrong. I mean, seriously wrong. That is a, that is a searing, excruciating experience with bountiful riches contained within it. Um, and the bountiful riches is that as a matter of discernment, I've learned not to trust the I'm right feeling, especially when I'm having that feeling with a group of people. Uh, I've learned not to trust that I'm right feeling, and the feeling I trust is the I'm loved feeling. Very different feelings, but the one can masquerade as the other. You know, part of the reason I got swept along into leadership in Word of God as it shifted from counterculture to counter countercultural mode, um, from embrace more to exclusion, uh, which I think is the fruit of that I'm right feeling, is uh, the blinding power of privilege. So the thing was led, led mostly, it was led by men, and vast majority were white men, and I fit the profile. I was like, I was from the lucky demographic. It's really hard to see the injustice of a system that you're the beneficiary of. It's really hard to see. The, not just to see, but to feel and to get it. The injustice of a system that you're the beneficiary of, especially when the system has like a, a lot of good in it and a lot of God in it and a lot of wonderful things are happening. It's like you've got this, if, it's like you've got this skin and, and there's, a, there's a layer of like a, some kind of bacteria on it. It's fine until you get like a puncture wound. And then, then that, that bacteria goes into that wound and it just festers. And for so many people, that's what was going on. You know, in the religious sphere, the, the sphere, realm, the feeling of being right with another group of people who share your perspective is like crack cocaine. It's like, you know, cocaine is, is fake joy. It takes over the dopamine system, replaces it with a more powerful chemical thing, and then it represses your brain's ability to feel happiness, joy. It's, it's addictive fake joy. But it has slowly impedes your experience of like real joy. And real joy has nothing to do with being right and everything to do with being wrong, with being loved. And you're loved even when you're wrong. Uh, and to me, that's the, the Jesus treasure. It's not being right, it's being loved. Um, so for me, the 1990s was a period of recovery from uh, profound religious uh, disillusionment. I was still functioning as a pastor, but man, I was, I was shaken inside. And, you know, separating the good from the bad of intense experience in religion, that is a lot of hard work. That is a lot of hard work. Um, and it took, it took time. And, but the thing is, um, <laughs> the, the good thing looking back is that I was game for intense spiritual experience. 
even though I came from kind of a British reserve background. Somehow or another, I became game for intense spiritual experience. And when you're game for that, and you're in a setting where it's encouraged, you end up doing a lot of things that are one part genuine and nine part foolish. Usually they're not dangerous, they're just foolish. But there's that one part that's genuine. And that genuine is like a sweet perfume whose scent you cannot shake once you've caught a whiff of it. And, and the essence of that scent has nothing to do with feeling right and everything to do with feeling loved. So I think it was the openness to spiritual experience and knowing what the nub of it was, learning through hard, hard experience, it super came in handy uh, when it was time for me to rethink LGBTQ, which is the reason I'm, you know, we connected Emily and I to the serendipity moms. It's like, if they haven't left already, who is this guy? You know you're being slightly vulnerable when you're embarrassed about most of what you're talking about. Um, uh, that's a long story told elsewhere, that other thing, the LGBT thing. But um, eventually the church I led became part of this evangelical charismatic denomination. Uh, and just before I became a national leader in that, in that denomination, I um, became email friends with Phyllis Tickle. Uh, Phyllis Tickle's an old mystic lady. Uh, but nobody really knew that she was a mystic lady She's a religion editor for Publishers Weekly. Long story, we connected by email, and she became kind of like my spiritual director, and I kind of became hers, and we would email each other about spiritual experience and things we were thinking about. And unbeknownst to me, she was a fierce ally of the LGBT community at a time when that was even more significant. Um, and eventually I visited her mostly gay church in Memphis, and... I, looking back, I was prepared for not being freaked out by that experience, by just a classic experience of um, what I would describe as the essence, uh, the treasure hidden in the field. So, I've mentioned this before, I don't like to go into in-depth on, you know, precious spiritual experiences, but I wrote about this one, so it's like fair game. But I was, I was praying one morning, and uh, I think it was just before I found out that Phyllis went to a gay church, and I had invited her to come and speak at this church, and she told me that she was part of a gay church that I still wanted her to come, and I was like, sure, Phyllis. <laughs> um, but I was prepared for that because I had started learning to do the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Um, we had that little prayer at the beginning. I know I'm going a little long, sorry. Um, but where, where we talk about God be in my head and in my understanding, God be in my eyes and in my seeing, God be in my mouth and in my speaking, and then God be in my heart and in my thinking. That's a seventh century prayer. And in that pre-medieval um, period, people thought of their heart is where like their deep thinking went, where they were most in touch with reality. We would never say it that way. We'd say thinking in the head and feeling in the heart. But they said, please be in my, God be in my heart and my thinking. 
And the Jesus prayer was designed by people who had the experience when they prayed it of descending with their mind into their heart. So like with their surface thinking into their deep thinking. And so I, I tried this out and I was praying Jesus prayer, blah, 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 blah. And I, I had a really big Starbucks, so I was like super focused. And I kind of felt myself, I, I learned what this meant afterwards. It, it made sense to me, this descent with the mind into the heart. At the time, I didn't know it, but I felt it. I felt like I was being lowered with my awareness down an elevator shaft from my head into my like literal chest cavity. And then like a scene emerged and it was a cave. And I was in the cave and there was a fire. And Jesus was sitting next to me on a log in the fire and we were just staring at the fire together and I, 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 I didn't usually have these kind of things so I wanted to keep it going I remember the feeling of like I'm a sinner and I remember a feeling from him was like tell me something else that's new like it's like and he was like yeah I know it sucks to be a sinner and it was like he had his arm around me, like this. And we were just sitting there, looking at the fire. And I started mentioning the names of different people, because I wanted to keep this experience going, you know. So my wife, my kids, his staff. I mentioned one friend of mine named Don. And um, for the first time, I heard this figure next to me in my experience say, I was praying for Don and his wife, and their kids, and his sister. I really wanted to keep the thing going on. And this figure in my mind said, oh, and another one's on the way. And that, to me, was like a data point, because there was no data point in real life. And so when it was all over, I went to Don, and I said, does your sister-in-law, is she pregnant? And she said, yeah, we just found out. How would you know that? So that like, was like, oh, maybe that was real. You know, it was so intimate. Like, I didn't want to pray again because I felt like, oh, crap. I've been relating to Jesus like he's one of those, like, lucky rabbit feet in my, in my pocket that I pull out and rub every now and again. And I get him to tell me how right I am, you know. But this was like, oh, my gosh, he's, he, he could be real. And he could tell me what to do sometime. And he could tell me to do something. And I would know it's him telling me to do it. And I would do it even though it was a stupid thing to do. I was afraid to pray again. Somehow I knew intuitively that that thing I was experiencing with Jesus was connected to realizing the church was wrong about LGBTQ. Like I just knew it in my gut. Like if I wanted to keep that vibe going with Jesus, I was going to have to go there. And, and that's really the only reason I went there. It wasn't about figuring out the Bible. It wasn't about anything like that. I guess it really wasn't about loving my gay brothers and sisters. I think it was about wanting that thing to keep, keep, keep on going. Um, and then the love for my gay brothers and sisters came later. <laughs> okay. I, I think I've said enough for now. <laughs> um, let's have a time of quiet reflection. I can pull myself back together. So um, Kathleen said something that caught my attention. She said, talked about all the voices we have in our heads, you know, 
Um, we take a couple of minutes of quiet reflection for anyone else to do it. Guide it a little bit if you want. Uh, it's quiet, so babies make noise and people, uh, all that kind of stuff, but relative quiet. But we, we all, our inner consciousness is just a bunch of voices, right? And sometimes the voices are our parents and they're all sorts of people and figures and, you know, there's a, it's a, it's a congress of persons in our heads that constitute our, our uh, consciousness. And there's lots of voices that, as Kathleen said, like purport to be the voice of God. And it's, it's the task of spirit, true spirituality is to discern which of those voices that purport to be God are God in your head. And I guess what, I've, what I'd offer as what I've learned, and you could try it on for size if you wanted to, is to sort out the real voice from the pretend voice um, the real voice to me is just saying, I'm here, I'm not going away, I'm for you, get used to being liked, and I've got plenty of time. Like That to me is it. I'm here, I'm not going away, I'm for you, get used to being liked, I've got plenty of time. So if anyone wants to like just try that on for size um, in, your, in your spiritual, you know, a certain playful attitude is helpful for these meditations. Go ahead and uh, try that. I'm going to take a deep breath and cleansing breath and relax, get in a comfortable position. And I'll just repeat that little litany um, again and then in maybe 30 seconds. I'm here. I'm not going away. I'm for you. Get used to being liked. I've got plenty of time. last time and just we'll take a minute after this I'm here I'm not going away I'm for you get used to being liked I've got plenty of time Amen.
Gedanken 